Luke chapter 10, that's where we'll be this morning, verses 17 through 24. Thank you, Jeff, for reading that earlier for us. We've been back in the Gospel of Luke for a few weeks now. If you remember back in chapter 9, verse 51, it, it marks a transition in the book where Jesus sets his face to head towards Jerusalem, knowing that rejection and suffering await him there at the cross. And so this next major section has a lot to do with Jesus preparing the disciples for his impending departure. We saw that much like Jesus' Galilean ministry that opened in Luke chapter 4, this portion of Luke's gospel opens with rejection. And so Jesus followed that up with instruction on how it is costly then to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He makes it really clear in his interaction with those three different guys there who are confused about the level of commitment that is required in order to be a disciple of the Lord. In essence, if Jesus is the Son of God, if He is one with the Father, if He is the one with authority over angels and sickness and disease and demons and death and even sin, if He is the long-awaited King of kings, then there is nothing that He cannot ask. There is nothing that He cannot rightfully demand from His followers. So even good things then are placed underneath this authority of Jesus Christ. Things like family and time and energy. These good commitments that we ought to have are subservient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 10 began with Jesus commissioning and sending out the 72 others. That is 72 followers of Christ in addition to the 12 that were commissioned in Chapter 9, they were to go out into the cities in which Jesus would soon be visiting to proclaim the kingdom of Christ. They were to heal the sick in a, in a demonstration that the kingdom is here in Jesus Christ. Many would refuse, though, to hear this message. And so Jesus spoke of the rejection that they would face as they went into different cities and into different homes. And Jesus warned about the harsher judgment that these cities would face as those who had heard the message of the, the kingdom. Their judgment would be harsher than the infamous cities of Israel like Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. So in this section, you have, you have rejection and you have cost. And then you have the cost of going out and preaching the kingdom. And then you have the rejection of this message. Rejection, cost, cost, rejection. But this morning, we are introduced to a third word. You not only have rejection, you not only have cost, but this morning you have joy in Christ. And joy found in following Christ. That is real joy. Deep-seated joy that is wrapped up in knowing Jesus Christ and in being united with Him through faith. So our first point this morning is found in those first four, uh, four verses there, verses 17 through 20. Let us rejoice in our position. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So last week we saw Jesus send out the 72. This morning we see the return of the 72. Luke doesn't indicate for us how long they were out doing their ministry, but when they came back, they came back with joy. I'm sure they endured the rejection that Jesus anticipated there and, and, and talked to them about that they would face and how they should respond to rejection. But they come back thrilled They come back filled with joy because the power of Satan and the cohort of his wicked demons, they they had a greater authority over even them. They had power demonstrated over Satan and his kingdom. Now, all angels were originally created good and holy, However, many joined with Satan in his rebellion against God. And this decision is irrevocable. There remains no redemption for the wicked angels. There's only redemption for God's image bearers. Man, and they re- so they remain in their rebellion against God. They have made themselves God's enemy. They have made themselves the enemy then of God's church and even God's image bearers. These demons, these wicked angels, these angelic forces, they exert a powerful control over this world and, as we've seen in the Gospels, even over certain individuals. But Jesus, as the Son of God, we've seen over and over and over in the book of Luke, is greater than the angels. He is the Son of God in the flesh. So when He commands the angels, they flee. When He says, go, they go. Because he is in a position of authority above them. We've seen the demons tremble in his presence and beg of him certain things and even question, why are you here, Lord Jesus? So the 72 then are rejoicing. That is, they were sent out as representatives of Jesus. They were able to share in this authority. This was, again, we we mentioned last week, a delegated authority, an authority that had been given to the 72 by Christ. Jesus says that as they were out proclaiming the kingdom then, as they were out exercising the authority that had been granted to them by Christ, that he was observing the fall of Satan. It says there at the end of verse 18. Now it's tempting, I, I think, at least for me, when I hear the word fall, I, I, my mind wants to go back to the fall, you know, Genesis chapter 3, where Satan and man rebelled against God. But it seems here, from the context, that Jesus isn't looking back. He's not saying, I, I, the 72 come, we, we exercise authority over Satan. Oh, well, I w- while you were gone, I was looking back to Genesis chapter 3. That doesn't seem to fit the context of the narrative. Nor does it seem that Jesus is looking forward to the cross where he will deal a decisive blow to Satan and his kingdom. And he triumphs over the powers of darkness. 
it seems that, that this fall that Jesus was observing while they were doing their ministry is related somehow to the ministry of the 72. So I think what Jesus is saying is as they went out and they preached and they proclaimed the kingdom and as they exercised the authority that God had given them to, to heal and, and to cast out demons, that it was a demonstration of the overthrow of the rule of the enemy. He was falling from heaven, cast down, defeated, cast down like a lightning bolt, thrust from the heights of heaven to the dust of the ground. I think much like last week, Jesus is borrowing language from Isaiah chapter 14. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How, are, how you are cut down to the ground who had laid the nations low. That's a, that's a king that Isaiah is talking about. I don't think it's a fair leap to just say, oh, this is about Satan. But I think Jesus is borrowing the language there of Isaiah 14 to describe the overthrow and the casting down of Satan as the message of the kingdom went into these towns and into these homes. So we would say that this is not Satan's final defeat, but it is a real defeat. He was cast down. He was defeated with each person who was delivered with each person who turned to the Lord in response to the preaching of the kingdom. It was a defeat. It was a loss for Satan and his authority and his power, like a flash of lightning, a defeat. And then another one turns, boom, another flash, another loss. The power and control of Satan is coming to a close in the person in the arrival of Jesus Christ. He has come to defeat the works of the devil. And this is a, a demonstration of that defeat. They went out and they proclaimed that salvation is available in Christ. As they were freed from the control and the enslavement of Satan and his demons. This casting down, it's, it's a preview of the final judgment where Satan is cast down and he is condemned to eternal wrath forever in hell with his angels. So for us today, we live in the intervening years between the first and second coming of Christ. Between the cross where, again, a decisive blow was dealt and, between, and the final judgment that we just mentioned. We live in the in-between there. Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He blinds the eyes of the unbeliever from seeing the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. But we have been given the task. That's what we've been talking about in Luke chapter 10. We've been given the task as the church of proclaiming the resurrected Christ. By his mercy and by his kindness, he has enlisted the church as the means by which the gospel goes to the nations. He's enlisted each of us in this ministry, whether it's in the supporting of the, this ministry, of this church, whether it's giving so that missionaries might go and proclaim Christ, even as Jeff prayed this morning that Savannah, having opportunities to share the gospel with students in need of hearing the gospel. 
whether it's praying for those who preach the gospel, whether it's being ready uh, with a defense for the hope that is in you. We've been given this task. We have reason for great joy because God has chosen the church to be his means by which the gospel might go forth and that he might open the eyes of the unbeliever through the proclamation of Christ and his death and in his resurrection. The blindfold is taken off and unbelievers can see the glory of the gospel. The light of the gospel shines in their heart uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, giving them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have a role in this proclamation. And what a, what a, what a source of joy that you have this position of authority that God would use you for His glory, that God would use the church. And that as we proclaim Christ, eyes are opened to the gospel, as one comes to Christ, it's as if Satan falls and the angels rejoice in heaven as one more receives Christ as they repent of their sin and trust in him. We haven't done a thing to deserve this position. We'll see that in a moment. We haven't done a thing to deserve being part of God's good plan. But he delights in using the weak things of the world to confound the wise and in this we can rejoice. Notice then that the authority that the 72 are given is found in Jesus Christ. The the demons were subject to the 72, not on their own basis, but in the name of Christ. That is to say that it is an authority that is not their own. The angelic forces are subject to Christ. And when these men are sent out, they're sent out as representatives of Christ and they are granted this authority. Jesus makes it really explicit there in verse 19 when he reminds them that this authority had been given to them. I have given you authority, he says, to tread on scorpions and serpents. Or, yeah, serpents and scorpions. Now, contrary to what you may have heard in the holes and hollers of Tennessee, that doesn't mean we should be handling snakes in church. I read this byline in National Geographic this week. After a number of high-profile deaths, some Christian snake handlers are rethinking their approach. Good. These, these snakes, these, these scorpions, what's, what's going on here? Should we be demonstrating the power of God by pulling rattlesnakes? Of, of course not. These are, these are symbols of forces in creation that oppose God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is imploring Israel, when you get into the land, do not forget. Do not forget the kindness that I showed to you. When you, when you get property and, and homes and you have this prosperity, don't think that you did that. And he says there in verse 15, he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions. He led you through it. Who is it that protected the Israelites from these dangers, from these opposing forces? It was the Lord. 
So to tread over them is to be in that position of authority and victory and safety in the midst of opposing forces who hate God. In fact, the imagery of treading over a serpent points us back to Genesis 3.15 where the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, would tread on top of his head. They've been given authority over the enemy and the result is they will not be hurt by the enemy. Not even the powerful forces of Satan Not only the serpent himself can truly harm these disciples. Christ's authority has overcome this evil. Now let's come back to that in a moment, but let's say this for now. The power to expel demons, you know, that the 72 exercised here, is not something that we we understand to have passed down to the church at at the present time. This, this was a unique ministry given to the 72 and to the apostles themselves. However, we can rejoice in Jesus' victory over Satan because we indeed share in that victory if we are in Christ. If you have a minute, you can flip over to Ephesians 1. Of course you have a minute. Um, I don't know why I said that. Um, Ephesians 1, just quickly, I don't normally do a ton of flipping, but I want, you to, I want you to see this. Paul is praying that they would have their eyes opened, that they may know what is the hope of their calling, that they may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then he goes to illustrate this this power. What does Paul use to illustrate the power of God? Is it the Red Sea? Is it creation? No, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are wicked rulers and wicked powers and wicked dominions. And above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. That he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ dies, he's resurrected, and he ascends to the right hand of Uh, The Father in a position of authority over these dominions, over these powers, over these rulers, over these authorities. And then look in chapter 2. It moves from the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ to a different resurrection and a different ascension, though related. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the lot of, uh, that was our lot before we came to Christ. It's the lot of everyone outside of Christ. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
So we were dead in trespasses and sins. God has made us alive. And he did more than that. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you used to exist in this realm of, of death, death in, in sin, death in trespasses. You were dominated by Satan. You were dominated by the course of this world. You were dominated by the passions of the flesh. You walked according to these things. But God has made you alive, he has resurrected you, and he has raised you up, and he has seated you with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you are united with Christ this morning, you are in him in the sense that you, you share in that victory. You are no longer dominated by the things that used to dominate you, the passions of the flesh, Satan himself, in the course of this world. In Christ, we are no longer enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the prince of the power of the air. We are raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Since these things are under Christ's feet and you are in Christ, and you participate, you, you have this privileged position in Christ Jesus where you're not dominated any longer. Certainly the flesh still pulls, certainly Satan still tempts and prowls around, but we are no longer enslaved to those things. Satan harasses and he afflicts God's church. He hates you. He hates this church. He wants nothing more than to deceive you through false teaching, through temptation, through sin, through devouring your faith, through persecution. But for the one who is in Christ, for the one who has this privileged position, we're not enslaved to those things. We are empowered then to resist the devil. And the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a, what a source of joy to be in Christ. To be united to the one who has defeated the powers and the dominions and the authorities and the rulers. But amazingly, Jesus tells the 72 that, that there's, there's an even greater source of joy. I don't think, I don't think that verse 20 is, is a rebuke. Like, what do you, what's wrong with you guys? Why do you have joy here? I think it's, it's more of a comparison. As good as it is to have been granted this authority by Christ, there is something even greater. You know, it'd be like telling my boys, hey, we're going to get some Dairy Queen. But don't be excited about that because we're on our way out to an airplane to head to, well, we're not going to Disney, are we? Um, <laughs> vacation. You know, it, it, I'm not rebuking my kids for being excited about ice cream. I'm just saying, hey, there's something greater to be excited about. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Yes, Jesus, I think Jesus even sort of enters into their joy in a sense saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning. But you know what? There's a greater sense of joy that your names are inscribed in heaven. There's a greater source of joy. Rejoice in this, that the census has been taken. Your names are inscribed. This is, this is legal language. It's been written down. It's been recorded. 
Rejoice that you are personally known by God and that you can have certainty when it comes to your eternal destination. Who cares about the power if your name is not written in heaven? Who cares about the authority if your name is not recorded there in the book of life? The power they experienced was a gift, but there's a greater gift that their names are written down. They've been granted eternal life. We if you are in Christ, can continually rejoice because our names are recorded. Satan is falling from heaven. He's been cast down. Meanwhile, their names are inscribed in the book of life. The evil one can't touch the books. And it's in this, I think, that we get a, a hint at what Jesus means when he says the, these, these evil forces, they will not hurt you. They will not harm you. Maybe even as we walked through that, you were wondering, what about the fact that the apostles were, almost all of them, killed for preaching the gospel? What about Paul's thorn in the flesh, who the Bible says is, is a minister of Satan, a messenger of Satan? Were they not harmed? Are we not harmed by temptation, by disease? By weakness, by persecution? Well, in one sense, yeah, those things aren't fun. They, they are hurtful, but in the most important way, Satan cannot harm you. You are Christ. If you are in Christ, you are Christ, and he will keep you until the end. That's why Martin Luther described Christians as kings over creation. You're like, what in the world? That sounds sort of like elevating Man, well, what he meant by that was that even though creation is full of dangers and sufferings and, yes, even demonic opposition, at the end of the day, everything in creation can only serve to sanctify God's people. He was drawing from Romans 28, 28 and 29, which you, you guys are familiar with, I'm sure, and we know that for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. For those who are in Christ, creation is subservient to the Creator, and therefore even those things that are hurtful and harmful, humanly speaking, are serving the purposes of God and are accomplishing our sanctification, our growth in Christ, our conformity to the image of Christ. Now, that doesn't make those things easy. We're not whatever the opposite of a hedonist is. We don't, we don't love pain. We hate suffering. We hate when we walk with brothers and sisters in Christ through suffering. But at a real in a deep level, we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering, knowing that God is accomplishing His will in the lives of His people, which is conforming them to Christ, because He is Lord of all creation, and creation is subservient to His purposes. Again, what a reason to rejoice. The book of your names are written in the book of life. Again, I think you see sort of these things come together in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Here's, here's opposition from the evil when you're going into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. That's hardship, that's trial, that's persecution. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He can't touch the books. He can't touch, he cannot ultimately harm you because you are Christ. We can rejoice and in our privileged position through the work of Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And now Jesus turns and rejoices. Look there in verses 21 and 22. Let us rejoice in our triune God. I was listening to a preaching podcast this week, and they, say, they said, you know, if your first point's really long, it just makes your sermon feel really long. So listen, our first point was four verses. Points two and three combined are four verses. All right, we'll, we'll be all right. Jesus rejoices here in the Holy Spirit. We've seen throughout the book of Luke that Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Savior, that He is led by the Spirit. He is full of the Spirit. And so being led by the Spirit, Jesus expresses His thankfulness to the Father. This This is praise. This is thanksgiving in light of divine kindness and majesty. He, too, is rejoicing in the salvation of the disciples, as we'll see here in a moment. Jesus turns and he praises the Lord. He offers him thanksgiving for his goodness and his kindness. Praising the Father specifically for the goodness and the beauty and the rightness of the way he has administered salvation. The way he has administered salvation. Well, how is that? God, as Lord of heaven and earth, has chosen to reach down and rescue those who have nothing to offer but need. Look there in verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for for such was your gracious will. So the contrast there between the wise and the understanding and children, or even you could say infants there, babies, it makes Jesus' point plain. God has not chosen the elite. He has not chosen the strong. He has not chosen the wise. Instead, he has chosen those who are the spiritual equivalent of an infant, completely and utterly helpless. And the focus here is on the the sovereignty of God in accomplishing His will, His way, and administering salvation the way He desires. You know, as much as the disciples should rejoice that their names are written down in heaven, they should not forget that it's only because God has been gracious with them that their names are written there at all. This was the Father's gracious will. His good and wise plan. He is the God who is all wise. He accomplishes all his good pleasure. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And he's always righteous and he's always good in everything that he does. Even when he saves the helpless, well, he leaves the wise and the elite in their blindness. 
You see, this is a humbling passage for us this morning. If God has rescued you from the penalty of your sins, if you stand justified before him through the work of Jesus Christ, then you are counted among the helpless, counted among the babies here. You know, as much as we want to say, oh, thank the Lord, he made an exception for me. He saved at least one wise person in myself. We should instead stop and praise the Lord for his grace and rejoice in his kindness and goodness in saving a sinner like me and a sinner like you that was absolutely and utterly without hope in this world. And this is not just the will and work of the Father. But look in verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Verse 22 shows us that the Father and Son, though they're distinct persons, they possess the same authority because they possess the same divinity. They, they possess the same divine nature. Luke 10.22 sounds like it was pulled straight from the Gospel of John with John's emphasis in proving the deity of Jesus Christ. But Luke goes there this morning. One commentator said it this way, this is clearly one of the most impressive texts regarding the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Jesus' claim here to be the Son of the Father is a claim to have the same nature as the Father. My Father. He says Father over and over and over again in these two verses. Jesus is God, very God, the second person of the Trinity. And notice, notice the closeness with which Jesus describes the relationship between Him and the Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. You know, when I first became a Christian, I was going to church, and I, I couldn't figure out how to read the hymnal, you know, I couldn't figure out why they're skipping lines, and then they started singing this song called, In the Garden, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. And I'm wondering, who is this guy? Who is this lucky fella who has met Jesus in the garden and he's experienced this joy that nobody has ever experienced and never will again? I, you know, it doesn't make sense that that could have been me. You know, I've since learned that was the point of the song, but it still doesn't make a ton of sense because if I'm singing that and you're singing that, one of us is lying and probably both of us is lying. You know, it's, here's, the, here's the point. I, I may be, I, I, maybe I'm not granting enough artistic license. But here's the point. Jesus and the Father do share that intimacy that none other has ever known. They have a unique closeness as the first and second person of the Trinity, along with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. They share a unique, exclusive, mutual relationship. They know one another comprehensively, and they know one another exhaustively in a unique way that none other has ever known. 
And yet, notice the conjunction. No one knows who the Father is except the Son, and nobody knows who the Son is except the Father, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So when you come to Christ, you, are, you, you, ha, you know the Father. We can know God, not exhaustively, not like the Son knows the Father, because we are created, we are finite, but we can truly know the Father only through the revealing work of Jesus Christ. He has made him known. We see here that the, the Son and the Father, yes, distinct persons, sharing, though, the same authority and sharing in the same revealing work, the Son makes the Father known. The Son reveals the Father. But in verse 21, it was God's gracious will to reveal to the disciples these Things they share in this work. And notice that those who see the Father and come to know the Father are those whom the Son chooses. Those whom the Son chooses. There's a story, you know, some of these things are legends and not truth, but there's a story about Abraham Lincoln trying to deal with, with a dispute amongst his cabinet, and at the end of uh, the disagreement, he had been outvoted. You know, he had lost clearly. And he said this, seven A's and one A. He was the one A. Seven A's, one A, one A, the A's have it. All right, you get the point. Seven A's, one A, I'm the A, the A's win. Why? Because I'm the president. Because I'm Abraham Lincoln. I have that sort of authority. And that's what, this is, this is the authoritative Christ. Those who see the Father are the ones whom the Son chooses. And Dale Ralph Davis, one commentator, says this, My knowing the Father ultimately rests on His decision that may rankle some, but infants just bow and worship. Infants just bow and worship. Us, the children, the helpless ones whom Christ has saved, we just bow before his authority. So we see here the Son, Jesus Christ, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, thanking the Father for his gracious will. And we are invited into relationship with the Father through the work of the Son and applied to us by the Holy Spirit of God. We can and we should rejoice in the, in the ministry and in the character and in the nature of our triune God who worked to accomplish our salvation. God is so far beyond us. He is so magnificent. He is so glorious. How could we attain to what Jesus has attained to, that he knows comprehensively the Father? Yet in Jesus Christ, he knows the Father and he has made him known. He has revealed him to us. We should rejoice in our triune God. We should rejoice in our Savior this morning. My hope is that Christ would be a sustaining source of joy, not only individually, but for us as a church, that we would not lose sight of Christ and settle for lesser joys. May our church 
continue to be a, a, a refuge from all that the world fights about and seeks to find their joy in. May we be a source of real joy tethered to Jesus Christ, not to politics, not to shared interests, not to, to success, not to circumstances, but our joy is rooted in the triune God and in Jesus Christ himself. And is therefore, it's, it's untouchable. So lastly this morning, we rejoice in our privileged perspective. Then verses 23 and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus turns into the disciples. The woes upon Capernaum. And Chorazin and Bethsaida, those were made public. But here he turns privately to his faithful followers, the ones who have been given sight, the children, the infants, the helpless ones, who, who have been given a revelation of the Father. You know, these disciples, they have some serious pitfalls ahead. But Jesus says, the things that you have seen, you are blessed because you've seen them. The things that you have heard, you are blessed because you have heard them. Why? Because these things come through God himself. God has not, you, you have not come to this conclusion yourself. God has revealed these things to you. They are incredibly fortunate. They are blessed beyond measure because they are seeing and understanding things that the prophets and Kings of the Old Testament, they, they long to see this day. They hope to see the Savior. Yet this precious privilege is given to the disciples. Peter, recalling this conversation, wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that they have now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven." Things in which even, yes, angels long to look. So when Peter says the prophets were writing this stuff down, they were diligently searching, when is the Messiah coming? What's going to be surrounding the events when he comes? They realize in some fashion, Peter says, that they were serving you. So it's not, it's not just the apostles who live in this privileged position. It's not just those who, had, who were eyewitnesses of Christ and followers of Christ on this earth who are in this privileged position. The prophets were serving you in writing these things down about the Messiah. So we stand in this privileged uh, place where we can look back on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can see how God the Father orchestrated salvation to bring about his goal of saving the helpless and the weak who, who fall before him and, and confess that they are completely and utterly helpless without a Savior in Christ Jesus. We get to share in this privileged perspective. We are blessed in this. Not exactly like the 72, 
but similarly so. In some ways, we have the completed word and we have some advantages. And in this, in this perspective where we can look back and we can see God administering salvation, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. You know, how elusive is joy in our world? I read an article this week with this line in it, Never before in human history have so many with so much been so miserable. Never before in human history have so many with so much been so miserable. You know what? The whole article is just lamenting that we've achieved everything we thought would bring us joy. And it's failed. It isn't the the abundance of things that truly satisfies. It isn't the lack of suffering that allows us to rejoice. It isn't safety or security or self-esteem or self-actualization. It isn't unbridled fulfillment of all my deepest and darkest desires. All these things have been tried and they've been found wanting. They've been found lacking. Why? Because true joy isn't found in those things. It's not found in creation. It's not found in me. It's not found in fulfilling my own sinful desires. It's found in knowing God through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and in his victorious resurrection by which we may know God. At the Father's right hand, the psalmist says, are pleasures forevermore. There's joy inexpressible wrapped up in knowing God, and it is only possible through Jesus Christ who has made known the Father. Paul says it this way, and we'll close with this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we are so undeserving of Christ. We thank you that you have been kind and gracious to us. It was your gracious will to save the weak and the helpless, and you have done so in Jesus Christ, and your Son has revealed you. And we humbly thank you for that. Lord, may you be pleased and glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.